We are going to be uh, continuing in this series that we are calling Follow, in which we're looking at that great commission that Jesus gives to his church, this calling to go and make disciples of all nations. And through the course of this series, we've been talking about that calling and what that means for us personally, but also what it means for our lives and for the relationships that we have with those around us. And so I think it's only right that before we continue in this series, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that he has for us this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have set aside this time and this space in which to meet with us, your people, that you would teach us what it means to be your disciples, what it really means to follow you, and that out of that, you then call us to be disciples who make disciples. And so, Lord, as we continue to look at that calling, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So over the course of this series, we've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, what it means to, to hear his call, to, to follow him, to see that we have a, a responsibility to also invite others to come and follow him as well, that part of following him means being willing to be led and gathering into community where we study his word. But this morning, we're going to talk about something that may seem initially at odds with this idea of following. We're going to be talking about the issue of leadership, the call to lead. And what I find is that uh, certainly in our culture and, and as well in the church, we have a problem with leadership these days. We have a problem both with stepping into leadership, but we also have a problem with being led. And I think the reason why we have such a problem with leadership is really there are two. I think there's an external reason that we struggle with leadership, but I think there's also an internal reason that we struggle with leadership. The external reason that we struggle with leadership is because, quite honestly, many of our leaders have failed us. We live in a world where the leaders of our major institutions, from Washington, D.C. to the Vatican, have let down their people. Where we have seen people who are entrusted with public leadership through corruption and scandal betray the very people that they were called to lead. And the church isn't immune from this. In fact, a little bit earlier on this year, I was just struck by the failings of Bill Hybels, the senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. An investigation was opened into his ministry, which found that he actually had a history of using his leadership position to, to basically ask for um, certain favors from women who worked for him that he was found to be guilty of abusing women who served under his leadership. And quite honestly, ladies and gentlemen, this hit me pretty hard. You see, I became a Christian as a young man and going off to college and, and trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to be a Christian uh, leader? I read a lot of Heibel's books. It was actually one of his books on leadership, talking about ethics and having integrity and, and who you are when no one's looking that, that really drove home for me the importance of, of being a leader who is indeed above reproach. And so when I saw this guy, this man who's been a leader for so many fail, it, it kind of cut me to the quick. And I can understand why a lot of people are skeptical of leadership, even within the church. 
In fact, a recent Gallup poll revealed that since 1985, people's confidence in pastors and in the ethical standards of clergy has dropped from 67% to 42%. That's within my own lifetime. And I wouldn't be surprised if in light of this year's scandals with Willow Creek and scandals with the Catholic Church, if that number in America isn't even lower than that. We have this external problem with leadership because we've seen leaders fail. We've seen leaders betray the people they were called to lead. But I would argue that we also have an internal problem with leadership. And here's what I mean. We as Americans are stubbornly individualistic people. Stubbornly individualistic people. In fact, our entire country is built on this idea of rebelling against leadership, of asserting our independence, of claiming our own vote, of owning our own voice. And while in some respects, independence and, and fighting for the rights of the individual are a good thing, an important thing, I think in many circumstances, we as Americans have kind of made an idol of this to the point where it's almost impossible to actually lead our fellow Americans. In fact, even within the church, sometimes leading the church can feel, well, a little bit like this. Okay, Jesus said, Jesus said, Go and feed my sheep. He did not say, herd my cats. <laughs> and so, Lord, I would love it if every once in a while you would give me a few sheep. Because sometimes it can feel like herding cats. Try to get people to do anything. It's just like, oh, no, I don't really want to do that. No, I don't really feel, I have my own ideas. I think that this is what we really want to do. And you, you're running around just trying to get people to move in the same direction. In fact, when I tell other pastors that we got our entire church to like do the same small group study in the fall, they're just like, what? You got them to all do that? They all agreed? And I was like, well, it wasn't easy. It took like months of running around. But this is the way it can sometimes feel. But the reality is, is that this isn't just an American problem. I would actually say that this is a human problem. Because the reality is, is that what we really struggle with is we struggle with this internal problem of sin. Now, when we talk about sin as Christians, we don't talk about sin simply as breaking rules. That sin at its very, very core is actually rebellion against the God who made us. It is asserting our own will and our own initiative and our own plans and purposes over and against what he has called us to. It's rejecting the kingship and the leadership of God within our lives for the sake of asserting our own plans. And so we deal with this internal problem with leadership because we've rejected the leadership of the God who's made us. And so it's no surprise that we have a hard time following others. It's because at our very, very core, we have asserted our own dominance over our lives. And so calling people to follow leaders, much less calling them to lead responsibly, becomes very, very difficult when we as human beings are turned inward on ourselves. When our primary concern is for our own good and our own benefit. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about leadership. 
I want to talk about leadership because we live in a culture where often we assert our own will over and against the the will of God who sent us. And yet, one of the things we find, something we read in our scripture passages for this morning, is that there is a calling to lead within the church. And so the question we're going to ask this morning is, is what makes a great leader? According to scripture, what is good, not just good leadership, but great leadership all about? And I would say that there's actually three things that make for great leadership. Calling, character, and commission. Calling, character, and commission. And I want to look at each of these in turn for a moment. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. See, the first thing that makes for great leaders is an understanding of calling. An understanding of calling. What I love in Luke chapter 10 is it says that after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, it's one small verse, but you can pull a lot out of one small verse. The first thing that strikes me is notice that Jesus' circle of leaders has now expanded. Earlier in this series, we look at how he called 12, but now he's called 72, which means that this idea of multiplying leaders was something that was important to Jesus. He actually wanted to see more leaders within the church, more people who would not just participate in the mission, but actually be willing to lead others in the mission. And so now he's called 72. But the other important thing that this verse tells us is that he called them. That great leaders understand that there's this idea of calling, that they are called into their leadership position, which means that they actually serve under the authority and direction of someone who is higher than them. See, good leaders actually learn to lead by first learning to follow. That you become a good leader by first learning to follow and heed the calling of the one who, is, who has appointed you to that position. I think it's really, really funny how we often jump for leadership opportunities when we've never actually learned how to follow in that role. Can't tell you how many times in both student ministry and in church ministry when we get to like small groups, I have somebody come up to me and they say, hey, I want to be a small group leader. And I was like, well, awesome. Have you been a part of a small group? They're like, well, no. It's like, then you can't be a small group leader. Your first step in becoming a small group leader is you have to join a small group and see what it's like and learn to be led and understand your calling. And really good leaders, the people who actually then step into positions of authority, recognize that even when they wield that authority, they do so under the guidance and by the leadership of someone else. See, if I were to sketch this out, it kind of looks like this. Good leaders recognize that there is a king, a ruler over them, and that the power that they have is given to them by that king. And that it's only because he's called them to that position and given them that power that they then exercise their authority. This is life-giving leadership at its best. Because this kind of leadership sees that leadership position and that responsibility as a stewardship given to them by someone greater. And so they carry that power and that authority with humility and with a sense of responsibility, knowing that they are answerable to the one who's called them. That they will have to give an account for their leadership. And they understand that the people that they're called to lead, they are called to lead in his stead and by his authority, and so they take care of them. 
And often I think that we get this backwards. We try to assert our authority by exercising power over other people, either by abusing them or manipulating them. We try to establish our own authority by exercising power over other people, and we never actually come to see that we serve at the pleasure of someone else. We never actually learn from the king what it means to be a good, humble, caring, and selfless leader because we spend all of our time trying to establish our authority on our own strength and by bending others to our will. This is the reason, this is where leadership often goes wrong, where we spend all of our time trying to exercise our authority over others to establish our position. And we do so at their expense and to their detriment in order to build ourselves up. But truly great leaders, godly leaders, understand that they serve at the pleasure of the king. That it's his people that they're called to lead. And that it's only because he has given them a power and authority that they lead well and with humility. See, real, godly, great leaders understand that ultimately they are servants to someone who's higher than them. That's one of the things that blows me away every time you look at the letters from the early apostles, how they open. Paul starts uh, in that reading from Titus this morning, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for what purpose? To further the faith of God's elect people. And their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life. Paul understands, I am a servant of God for the benefit of his people. Likewise, you read from Peter. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. James, the brother of Jesus. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, when you look at the letters of the apostles, they start with this understanding of the fact that they are servants of God. These are guys who had every right, every right to assert their authority. These are the ones who had been called by Jesus. These were the pillars of the early church. And when you look at their lives, you recognize that they understand that they are called by someone who is greater than they are. And they serve at his pleasure. Which actually leads beautifully into kind of the second point, which is the character of a leader. Because you see, good leaders, great leaders, godly leaders understand that character is paramount to their leadership. They lead out of their lives. They understand that their integrity matters for their leadership. Recently, I was uh, uh, listening to a talk by Simon Sinek. Now, Simon Sinek is a uh, New York Times bestselling author and an organizational leadership consultant. And uh, recently, he did some research looking into Medal of Honor recipients, looking at, at these men and women who've received the Medal of Honor. And he remembers looking at videotapes of some of these recipients and just these acts of incredible heroism and bravery of these soldiers willingly laying down their lives for their fellow men and women. And at first he said, well, what makes, what makes a person a Medal of Honor recipient? Is it just that they're better people? Is that just it, that they have like a certain kind of character that the rest of us don't have? And, and what he found as he did more research is he found that no, that their character had been formed and shaped in a particular kind of environment. Their character had been formed and shaped in a particular kind of environment that when he interviewed soldiers and he says, why do you put your life on the line for your fellow soldiers? The answer they always give is, well, because I know that they would do it for me. I know that they would do it for me. 
And he says, how do you know? And so he started to look at, at what they did, and he found an interesting pattern. He found that at mealtime, in the best units in the military, that there was always one common denominator at chow time. And the common denominator among the best units in the military was that the commander always let his men and women eat first. That they would go into the mess hall and the commander would willingly allow all of the other soldiers in his unit to go in line ahead of him. Sometimes to the point where you would get to the end of the line and there wouldn't be a whole lot of food left for the commander. But then what Simon Sinek found out is then when those units would go out into the field, something else strange would happen. That in the field, the soldiers would take food from their own mess kits and they would bring it to their commanding officer. And they would gladly and joyfully stand guard while their commander ate and slept. And they did it with joy. And he said, why do you do that? And they said, because of the fact that he always lets us go first. That we know that he loves us. And so we gladly give to provide for him in return. See, writing in his book, Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek said this. He said, great leaders truly care about those they are privileged to lead. And understand the true cost of, lead, of the leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. The true cost of the leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. But you don't have to read a New York Times best-selling book to understand that. Because this is something that Jesus himself impressed upon his own disciples. At one point when he found his disciples arguing over who was the greatest, he sat them down and he said this. He says, you really want to know what it means to be great? You really want to understand what it means to lead in my family and in my community? Then understand this. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Great leaders understand. Understand that that privilege to lead comes at the expense of self-interest. And their characters are characters that are shaped around this understanding that they serve the people that they lead, often at great cost to themselves. And I think that this is something that we really struggle with. I think this is part of the reason a lot of us don't step into leadership is because we don't want to pay that cost. We don't want to pay the cost that we know it's going to take for us to lead others, and so we never, ever step up. We continue to put our own comfort and our own needs before and over everyone else in our life, and we never actually step into leadership because of what it will cost us. But what I would argue is that the cost is far outweighed by the benefit that leadership ultimately at its core is a labor of love. And we know this because of the best relationships that we have in our lives. I mean, no one becomes a parent, right, because that's going to make their life easier. Okay? Kids, we love you. I want you to understand that, but it's not easy. All right? Nobody gets, says, hey, I think we should have kids because the moment we have kids, we are going to get so much more sleep. <laughs> we are going to have, like, I mean, we're sleeping eight hours now. We are going to get ten, maybe twelve moment we have children. Or let's have kids and, and we'll have so many more finances. No, we, you don't. They go away. You want to know why? Because your kids eat them. Your grocery bill like doubles or triples as they grow. 
You don't become parents because it benefits you. You become parents because you want to expand that circle of love and you're willing to sacrifice so that these small human beings grow up to be well-rounded adults and leaders and contributors in their society. And you're willing to lay your life on the line and sacrifice for their benefit. And you know it's worth it. Likewise, nobody enters into a relationship with another person because they suddenly uh, decide that, uh, that by getting into a relationship, now they're going to have a lot more free time. Nobody says, you know, I have a problem with commitment, so I really think I should start dating someone. No. All right, you know, I really value personal time, alone time. I, I value my space and my stuff, so I should get married. Because you know that doesn't happen like the first month of marriage, you're like totally sleep deprived because this person that you're not used to sleeping next to is like constantly kicking you. And you accidentally use each other's toothbrush, you know, and they've got their stuff all over your room. We understand that when you get into a relationship, it's going to mean you sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your space. You sacrifice your resources. So why do we do it? Because of the benefit of sharing life with another person. Knowing that by being together, you're, the two of you are better than if you were on your own. You see, leadership is a labor of love in the same way. It says, yes, I will have to sacrifice, but the, but the cost is far outweighed by the benefit. Leadership is entering, intentionally being willing to enter into other people's lives for their good, that they might grow. In fact, the Apostle Paul talked about his own apostleship as fatherhood. At one point, he tells the church, he says, you have had many teachers, but you've not had many fathers, and I have been a father to you. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. Leadership is a labor of love for the benefit of other people. It grows out of our character, a willingness to share our lives with others, which is why a part of our discipleship path here at Trinity involves leadership, becoming a small group leader, being a coach, but recognizing that in order to do that, I need to be willing to lead out of my life. Lead from my character. To be able to say along with the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do we have lives worthy of imitation? The only way that's going to happen is if we recognize that leadership is a labor of love. Which brings us to our, our kind of our final piece, this last piece that we have to get Great leaders understand their commission. They understand their commission. Again, going back to that Luke 10 chapter, Jesus calls the 72, and then he says, this is the reason he calls them. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to go, uh, to, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Great and godly leaders understand that there is a greater calling in their lives. A calling to go and be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. To enter into the harvest field, to bring in the harvest. You guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about bearing fruit? It's amazing how, how often Jesus goes to these agricultural images and he basically says, I am sending workers out into my field in order to bring in the harvest. And I'm asking those workers to pray to the Lord that he would send more and that he would send more and that he would send more. 
You see, great and godly leaders recognize that they are called into leadership for the health and the sake of the mission of God. And so they step into leadership roles to help the church more fully live into that calling. To help the church more fully live into that calling to go into the harvest field and bring in the harvest. To follow where Jesus is leading and to help other people hear the good news of God's love and his grace in their lives. And I love how this is picked up by the apostles again. We go back to that Titus 1 reading that we had a little bit earlier on. This is what Paul says to Titus. He says, hey, look, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. See, Paul doesn't say, all right, Titus, you are now the pastor of Crete. You do all the work. He doesn't say, he says, Titus, you're the professional church worker, so you do all the work so that people can listen to you. He says, no, your primary job is to go and get more elders to help you. To go and call other people to join you in leadership. To ask the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers into his harvest field. And furthermore, he, uh, Paul wanted Titus to understand his commission. He says, in your job, Titus, the thing you have to remember is that any of these leaders that you call to join you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He's saying, ultimately, we lead and we call other people to lead so that that good news of Jesus would go forward then more people would know the love that God has for them and respond to that calling on their lives. See, leaders understand they have a greater commission. They know that they're called. They understand the importance of character. And they obey the commission for stepping into the harvest field. Now, it's a high calling. High calling to be a leader. Which is why I love what Jesus tells his disciples when he talks about this calling of leadership in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, look, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, ultimately, the only way that any of us are going to be able to step into leadership is if we first understand that Jesus did it for us. That like those soldiers in the unit that Simon Sinek was talking about who said, well, I do it because I know they would do it for me. Christian leaders step up because they know that Jesus has done it all for them. They understand his words. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is not only our model, but our means. Because when we look at his life, we see one who is willing to lay down everything so that we might live. Who is willing to endure the ultimate discomfort, leaving heaven and entering into our broken world, taking our sorrows upon his own shoulders, bearing our burdens, ultimately taking the judgment we deserved on his own shoulders, dying on a cross. Why? So that we might be forgiven and rise to new life. And when I understand that those are the lengths that Jesus is willing to go for me, 
leadership and the calling to step up in the church doesn't seem so scary anymore. Because I know that I go with my king's power and authority. That his character and his life are now given to me to shape me for the purposes to which he's called me. That's what Christian leadership, that's where it flows from. And that's why we call people to serve. That's why we invite you to step up into leadership. It's one of the ways in which we best learn to follow. It's a laying down our crown at his feet and saying, Lord, I will go wherever you send me. I will step into any position that you call me to because I know that if you call, you will provide. That's what it means to lead. That's what it means to follow. That's what it means to go with the one who calls us into his harvest field for the sake of the life and the growth of others. It's in the name of Jesus, who is indeed the good shepherd, that we say, Amen.